I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. This is important. It helps us get the word out about this podcast, and it helps more people learn about the history we discuss on it. I grew up two blocks north of North Carolina Central University during a time in which people never locked their doors. Everybody looked out for everybody else's children. I know now that we were an extremely protected group of youngsters. Two blocks north of where I lived was Lincoln Hospital. So we were right in the middle uh, between Lincoln Hospital and North Carolina College. All of the children of my area and other surrounding areas regularly uh, drifted to the campus to wear them half to death, I'm sure. We were allowed to go into the libraries, swimming pool, typing room, anywhere else here on the campus, and Dr. Shepard, in a way, welcomed us. Um, I can remember one summer when we must have been terribly obnoxious that he came out and talked to, oh, I imagine 15 or 20 of us who were coming from the pool, came out and talked to us, I think. And... <clears throat> suggested that, no, he didn't suggest, he asked if we would like to take typing. We were about 11 or 12 years old at the time. And of course we said yes, we didn't have anything else to do. So he set up with his top typing teacher down there an hour after swimming pool time for us to take typing. And so all these kids went in and this lady gave us a stop now, good course. Um, thank you in typing, and um, thank you, you too. And um, got us all started in that. So this was the kind of thing. The other thing was that Dr. Shepard was uh, really known for bringing to Durham the very best artists to be found in the country, the very best speakers to be found in the country, irrespective of race, um, and that kind of thing. So then, with the public being invited to go to all of these kinds of things, we went, and as kids, we, had the front row all the time, most times, when something was going on. Therefore, we got exposed to so many um, aspects of the culture that the average kid would not get. clip of an interview with a woman named Vivian Edmonds. She was being interviewed by a woman named Sonia Ramsey in 1993. That interview is part of the Duke University John Hope Franklin Research Center Behind the Veil Project and is courtesy of the Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Duke University. Born in Durham, North Carolina in 1927, Vivian was speaking about the kind of opportunities she had as a child growing up in Durham. That particular clip you just heard was of Vivian describing childhood memories of Dr. James E. Shepard. Shepard was a pharmacist, educator, and the founder of what would become North Carolina Central University in Durham. The school was first established as a private school for religious training in 1910. 
Over the years, it went through a number of changes in both mission and name, including in 1925 when the school became a four-year college, was renamed North Carolina College for Negroes, and became the first state-funded liberal arts college in the nation for Black students. The school's name was later changed to North Carolina Central University, its current designation, in 1969. A short time later, it became part of the Consolidated University of North Carolina system, which was created in 1972. Dr. Shepard was not as outspoken about racism and equality as some other prominent Black leaders in North Carolina at the time. And while many of Black Durham's leaders did often give deference to prominent and powerful white leaders and generally avoided confrontation, Shepard maintained this attitude to a higher degree than many of his counterparts. He was often compared to Booker T. Washington, as both were considered conciliatory on the issue of race relations. In fact, Dr. Shepard rejected both conflict and legislation to better race relations. Nonetheless, Dr. Shepard was a staple of Black Durham. Over his lifetime, he held many prominent positions in the community. Among them, president of the North Carolina Colored Teachers Association a trustee of Lincoln Hospital and Oxford Colored Orphanage, the director of Mechanics and Farmers Bank, and as a member of the North Carolina Agricultural Society. Now, Vivian Edmonds was the daughter of another prominent Black leader in Durham, journalist and social activist Lewis Austin, who, unlike Dr. Shepard, spoke his mind about matters of race. Mr. Austin purchased the Carolina Times in 1927, He served as president of the paper until his death in 1971, after which the newspaper was taken over by Vivian. Much of the paper's coverage was devoted to issues of racial discrimination, and Austin frequently wrote editorials advocating for equal rights. The Carolina Times served as the campaign headquarters for the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs, later renamed the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People. Next, you'll hear Vivian describing what it was like growing up as the daughter of an outspoken community leader like Austin in Durham, North Carolina, during the Jim Crow era. By the way, the Carolina Times ceased publication in 2020. of conversations we have looked at and seen representatives of telephone company go up the um, this is at our home now go up the post cut our phone off right in the middle of conversations which told us that the line was tapped um, the house has been assaulted with rotten eggs and, and tomatoes cross burned on the yard you name it threatening telephone calls uh, from 19, the late 1920s to the present. Threatening phone calls. Um, and I was not always treated so nicely in school, but here again, I never knew that um, that anybody was supposed to uh, become reclusive about anything. Whatever came up, came up. <clears throat> and still does, to an extent. <laughs> when you say you weren't treated so well, so what happened to the teachers? Well, my father filled me full of black history ever since I can remember. And I would go to school spouting that stuff and I'd be told, oh, Vivian, shut up. Nobody wants to hear that stuff. J.A. Rogers, a historian, <clears throat> was a good friend of Daddy's. And every year when Mr. Rogers would come back from Africa, he would bring us some little token. 
One year he brought a bust of Imhotep, the first man to operate on the human eye. And I very carefully wrapped this little bust and put it in my book bag and took it to school to show, very proud of it, because he had given me all this story of Imhotep when he came in. And and I was um, really uh, berated for bringing that African stuff in there. Wrapped it up and put it back in my book bag and went back home and talked about it like they had to tell you. called Swing Along, composed by Will Marion Cook and performed by the Orpheus Male Chorus in 1916. You can find this song at the Library of Congress. Cook was arguably one of the most famous African-American musicians and entertainers of his lifetime. Cook was a composer, conductor, performer, teacher, and producer, according to the Library of Congress. He contributed to nearly every aspect of African-American music in his time and worked with, quote, nearly every other important musician in his fields, end quote. Early in his career, Cook was a classically trained violinist. When he was 15 years old, Cook studied violin at Oberlin College in Ohio. Frederick Douglass helped raise funds to send him to study music in Berlin, Germany. Cook also studied at the National Conservatory for Music. But Cook later rose to fame, conducting and composing popular music, black musical comedies, and syncopated orchestral music after facing discrimination as a performer. His career as a songwriter spanned four decades. Cook's memoirs reveal that he believed his ultimate challenge was to write social justice while creating beautiful music. Cook's ties to North Carolina are far less glamorous. In her book, Swing Along, The Musical Life of Will Marion Cook, author and musicologist Marva Carter writes that he was diagnosed with tuberculosis and, quote, for the last decade of his life, he was in and out of recuperational facilities in Asheville, North Carolina, and the Edgecombe Sanitarium in New York, end quote. Cook was later diagnosed with heart disease. Pancreatic cancer ended his life in 1944. In the latter years of his life, Cook began to write his autobiography, A Hell of a Life. Carter provides an excerpt of it in her book, quote, 
Many men have told the story of their lives and achievements. They were great and left to posterity a blaze of light to brighten the way. I have dreamed much and achieved little. My biography has nothing of personal greatness therein, but still leaves valuable lessons to boys, especially my grandson, of the value of time, the importance of reserve and restraint, and self-control, without which no man ever became and remained really great." End quote. Now, whether one views those words as self-deprecating or an honest assessment of Cook's ill-tempered attitude he sometimes exhibited, which he admits caused him a great deal of trouble and led to a number of shortcomings in life, Cook's talents, however, were admired at the turn of the 20th century. And in the last 50 to 60 years, beginning with the civil rights movement, his legacy has been revived by historians and musicians. While he was well-traveled, I have absolutely no idea whether Cook ever traveled to Durham and met some of its Black leaders in the early 20th century. To be even clearer, I have zero evidence that he ever did. Though it would seem the value that Cook attributed to reserve and restraint later in his life was something a number of Black Durham's leaders at that time shared and used to build their community, which we'll discuss in this episode. mentioned in the previous episode, Parish Street in Durham was part of a four-block area that became what was known as Black Wall Street, the headquarters of the nation's largest Black-owned insurance company at the time, North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, was located on Parish Street. Again, North Carolina Mutual was co-founded by John Merrick and Dr. Aaron Moore, before Moore's nephew, C.C. Spaulding, later joined the company and went on to run it. North Carolina Mutual was soon joined by Mechanics and Farmers Bank on Parish Street. The bank was founded by Black brickmaker and businessman Richard Burton Fitzgerald and educational pioneer William Gatson Pearson. Durham's Black business leaders helped propel Durham's Black Wall Street along the path of financial viability. This enterprise zone, along with its Black leaders, accounted for much of Black Durham's success. Because of this, Black Durham eventually came to be known as the capital of the Black middle class. It is important to note that Black Durham's success did not end with Black Wall Street. In fact, Durham's Black Wall Street was located in the now historic Haytai community. In addition to being a central location for African-American-owned businesses, including those located on Parish Street, many of Black Durham's residents lived in this district as well. Haytai was the center of Black Durham's cultural, educational, and religious life. The Haytai neighborhood flourished from the 1880s into the mid-20th century. It was home to or connected to distinguished institutions such as Lincoln Hospital, North Carolina Central University, and White Rock Baptist Church. There were other Black districts in Black Durham at this time, but Haytai was by far its most prominent, prosperous, and distinguished. Much of the praise that Black leaders earned from outside of their community in Durham was not simply because a decent number of Durham's African Americans were upwardly mobile. It was also because Blacks in Durham had built a self-sustained community that offered opportunities for Blacks unseen in many other parts of the country, North or South. Haytai was a model for other Black communities and an example of what was possible for African Americans. More importantly, Durham's Black leaders did this in the deeply racist Jim Crow South while managing to avoid the sort of aggression and terror that was common for Blacks at this time. Haytai was formed in the years following the Civil War as free Blacks moved to the Durham area in search of jobs and other opportunities. There's a disagreement over the exact origin of the name Haytai. 
Many believe its founders named the community for the independent Black nation of Haiti. Here to expound upon that and other details about the Haiti community is Haiti Heritage Center Executive Director Angela Lee. Angela Lee, Executive Director of the Haiti Heritage Center in Durham, North Carolina. Great. So something that I've seen written differently in different places is the name Haiti, where it came from. And I mm-hmm. think there's a little bit of a disagreement. So can you just explain where the name Haiti came from? I think there is a little bit of disagreement, but the most popular version of it that I have heard is that it was named after the nation of Haiti when it fought for and gained its independence. And that would make sense because there are several Haiti communities around the country, particularly in the South Southeast. It's not just here in Durham. So I think that would make more sense now. I've heard another version, which was that the whites who were in power in Durham at that time named it Haiti, but I don't know why they would have. (laughs) It makes more sense that it was named after Haiti. And over time, the spelling and the pronunciation changed as often happens. I understand. How does the Haiti Heritage Center help preserve the legacy of the community? What kind of activities does it engage in with the community? We are a cultural arts and arts education venue, but we are also an historic venue. We're listed on the National Historic Register. So our mission speaks to both of those, our arts and our heritage. So our mission, therefore, is to not just promote and advance, but to preserve the heritage of historic Haiti and also to lift up the African-American experience through programs that benefit the broader community, not just locally, but nationally and globally. So we have core programs in art and arts education. We also have several historic programs that lean towards the humanities that we offer. And we engage in collaborative relationships in and around Durham, national partners. And we also provide a lot of facility rentals So I know there are a lot of influential folks in Haiti's history that have really helped shape the community. Would you mind just describing some of the ones that come to your mind when you think of Haiti? Well, we certainly have to lift up the elders of the community, the people who helped to build the Haiti community to what it was, the Moors, the Merricks, uh, the Fitzgeralds, the Spaldings, you know, those families that were so instrumental in developing Haiti. But we also had a lot of national interest in the community. So notably Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, they visited Durham and they marveled at what they saw in the Haiti community. They labeled Durham's Haiti as a national model for other communities to follow. And there was a a great deal of, of interest in the community. And I think it has to be said that a lot of the additional notoriety came about after the Tulsa massacre, after the burning in Tulsa, because as you know, Tulsa also had a Black Wall Street. So without Tulsa's Black Wall Street, then Haiti, Durham's Haiti truly became the beacon and the model for just what a successful, financially sustained Black community would be. You know, that is interesting. I hadn't considered that that Durham became more prominent after the burning of Greenwood in Tulsa. I hadn't considered that. Yeah. I mean, it was it was known. People knew about Haiti, you know, and all of the business development there with the North Carolina Mutual Insurance Company, with Mechanics and Farmers Bank, with the Lincoln Hospital, with all of the development that occurred. But I think that when Tulsa was destroyed and Blacks were disenfranchised, it created a greater awareness for what we still had to to serve as a model for Black sustainability and Black financial success. 
And just to be clear for folks who don't know, when we think of Black Wall Street in Durham, that's located in Haiti. Yes, at that time, consider if you will, it was called a district. So the district included the Haiti residential and business community, and the district included Parish Street, which was the hub of Black Wall Street. So that's where your banks, your insurance company, a lot of those were there. So it was all a part of one huge district and remained so until it was sort of decimated by the installation of a highway. It's very noteworthy uh, to me that our venue, the Haytai Heritage Center, which was built in 1891 and opened as an African Methodist Episcopal Church, It is the last remaining original structure from Black Wall Street, the last one. Some of the businesses are still in operation, but not in their original buildings. So it's even more important that we preserve its history and continue to tell its stories because, you know, it is it is the last one, the last original structure. That is definitely important. And that definitely puts like an exclamation mark on that point. So now. It was said that Blacks in Durham developed this cradle-to-grave community or self-sustained community, almost like an insular economy, but Mm -hmm. a larger society in the early 20th century. So can you kind of talk about what that looks like? Well, I can speak to it briefly, Nia, but picture, if you will, a community that literally had everything on this side of the railroad tracks because we weren't allowed to go to the other side of the railroad tracks. So if If it was there, it was in Haiti. So whether it was professional, whether it was social, whether it was religious, whether it was educational, everything was there. It was fully, fully economically sustained. So after the end of slavery, there were already uh, Blacks in Durham in the area, but many of them migrated to or ended up settling in Haiti, in Durham, in different parts of Durham, but all where Blacks were allowed to settle. And I would say the brilliance of so many people who were in Durham, you know, brick masons and carpenters and and mathematicians and educators, you know, there was just a wealth of skill set and intelligence and knowledge and, and, and beauty with artists, you know, everything was there. So there was really no reason for folks to leave once they settled in the community. If you needed health care, you know, they had health care. If you needed to do banking, they had banking. If you needed to stay in a hotel, they had a hotel. If you needed entertainment, just imagine a community where the likes of everybody from James Brown to Ray Charles to Etta James, all of these awesome, awesome performers traveled through Durham and performed. They stayed at the Biltmore Hotel, you know, they had the Cotton Club, you know, so everything was there. Movie theaters, I mean, social organizations, they had an athletic club. Althea Gibson used to practice tennis in the community. Arthur Ashe, you know, we have a picture of him on our wall at Haytai as a little kid, you know. So the Boy Scouts, you know, those civic organizations were very, very important. And the churches were extremely instrumental in providing safe havens and supporting the Black community. So people settled and and they made their homes in Haytai and, and they tended to stay. And, and going back to, you know, that period in time, the life expectancy, particularly for Black men, was a lot shorter than it is now. But yeah, cradle to grave, they had no need to turn elsewhere. This is something I think that isn't talked about enough when we talk about these sort of prosperous, relatively prosperous Black communities of that era. But based on your knowledge, how did Black women in Haiti contribute to the development and the success of that community? Well, aside from their roles as matriarchs, they contributed as businesswomen. So you had, for example, the Shazar's Beauty College. So women had businesses as well. Black women had businesses and they were popular businesses, successful businesses. And then, you know, you had people like Polly Murray, who is an icon, but who just was was an amazing uh, woman in her own right. And there were several others who aren't necessarily named as prominently as a Moore or a Merrick or a Spalding, but they were right there doing their thing. And you also had 
nurses who treated the wounded during the war, who provided patient care during the Spanish flu. These were women who had that skill set and who had that compassion for other human beings, had educators. So they taught our children. They were leaders in the schools. And then when the North Carolina Mutual Insurance Company was open, there were women, strong women, who served roles of importance for that company. They were polished, they were professional, and they handled their business. They took care of customers and, you know, they made it work. So women played a a really key role. They were not in the background, although you don't hear their names as, as prominently as you should, but they were very much at the forefront in Durham's early development. We know that a large part of the glory that Haytai and, and the larger Durham community enjoys is because of its model of economic success. And I wonder this idea of group economics that was practiced in Haytai among the Black community, not only supporting each other's businesses, but supporting the community at large so that it would be a viable community where people wanted to live and then stayed, as you mentioned, had no need to go elsewhere. How do you think that helped folks in the Haytai community develop other programs almost similar to the kind that your organization, the Haytai Heritage Center, actually runs. How do you think it helped them develop other programs, civic programs in the community that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to advocate for in a political arena due to the fact that Black men, Black folks couldn't vote? You know, it's really the the history around that time was very fascinating. You know, you had your... Federalists, you had your Republicans, you had your Democrats, and the scripts were sort of flipped. But early on, you had a few Blacks in power until whites decided that was not going to do. And then you had, you know, what happened in Wilmington where people were murdered. And when the conservative white supremacist party regained power, they drove the Black politicians out. So, but they had been there for a time. So it's really very interesting and fascinating history. But I think that. For the time and given all of the resources that the community generated, plus, you know, we have to acknowledge that there were some very wealthy whites who contributed to the economy as well, uh, notably Washington Duke and a couple of other people who loved the, the Black community. But you could count on a dollar changing hands multiple times in the Black community. And that truly did help to capitalize the community so that you had, you know, such success as a middle-class community, uh, which it was. I also have to say, though, I don't want to sugarcoat this. There were other Black communities in Durham that were very economically deprived, that were very poor. You know, like three other communities, the Bottoms and a couple of others. And, you know, Blacks did not fare well in those communities. So while Haytai was a model, and while it was very much a success story, we cannot say that it was all of Black Durham because it was not. There was still a lot of poverty and and a lot of repression among Blacks in Durham. But as a community that was a model for what could be possible, Haytai was it, without a doubt. I wonder, in your opinion, Do you think there was any sort of, I don't want to say resentment, but we do know that, for example, back then, you know, folks would call themselves the best men or the best women, you know, which sounds a little abrasive to our ears today, Mm -hmm. but it's just kind of the way they describe themselves, you know, the middle class back then. And if that was the case, would the implication be that the other folks who were not as wealthy, not the best? You know, I I honestly am not going to pretend that I know the answer to that. What I will say is that I have not heard any stories or read any stories about this backlash or this huge resentment. I know that a lot of poor Blacks worked in the tobacco factories and they suffered the worst humiliations. It was like slavery all over again because... They were in the worst parts of the factory where it was hot. They had the worst jobs compared to white women who were in the cleaner areas. They were under the constant supervision of these white bosses, if you will, who shouted 
insults and obscenities. And if they felt that these Black women were not working fast enough or working hard enough, you know, they were subject to hit them, you know. So there was a lot of abuse, but that's more a product of the racism, the systemic racism that still permeated the community, I think, than the resentment towards Blacks who were middle class or who were able to do better. That's just what it was. Heritage Center Executive Director Angela Lee just explained, there were other communities in Black Durham, and a great deal of Black people in Durham were not wealthy or middle class, like those in Haiti. Many of Black Durham's African Americans and people of color were poor or working class and struggled to get by. And as Duke University Professor Emeritus Robert Korstad explained in the previous episode, Many of them labored in the city's tobacco factories, which sprang up following the tobacco-driven economic boom Durham experienced in the late 19th and early 20th century. The city attracted scores of migrants, including whites and blacks, seeking employment and opportunities to capitalize on its growth. While many were able to do so, many others were not. Furthermore, class distinctions between the wealthy and the poor in Black Durham mirrored those of White Durham. However, the biggest difference between the two being racism. This caused Blacks of all income levels to be subjugated to the worst forms of abuse and oppression, though being poor and Black in Durham was a much, much harder life, as Angela Lee alluded to when she likened working in the tobacco factories as slavery for some people during this time. Durham's primary tobacco manufacturers were the Bull Durham Tobacco Company and Washington Duke's W. Duke & Sons Tobacco Company. Washington Duke founded that company and went from being a penniless Confederate veteran in the summer of 1865 to one of the wealthiest men in the United States. His son, James B. Duke, joined with four other leading cigarette manufacturers and formed the American Tobacco Company in 1890. As Professor Korstad and North Carolina Central University Professor Henry McCoy explained in the previous episode, some of Black Durham's leaders had close ties with the Dukes, including North Carolina Mutual founder John Merrick, who was once Washington Duke's barber. For example, Merrick was instrumental in securing the funds from the Duke family for the construction of Lincoln Hospital, which served African Americans. The extraordinary influence and authority John Merrick wielded enabled him to maintain relationships with white leaders like the Dukes and to work within the white power structure to protect and advocate for the interests of Blacks in Durham. As we continue to juxtapose the communities of Wilmington, North Carolina, and Durham, North Carolina, hearing experts describe Durham's Black Wall Street and the Haiti community may be difficult for some people to imagine that both Wilmington and Durham existed in the same state at the same time, but produced two very different outcomes for their respective Black communities. Wilmington, of course, becoming the site of a racially motivated massacre and coup d'etat. And Durham, well, not only did Durham manage to largely avoid the type of abuse Blacks in the Jim Crow South often experienced, with a few exceptions, they seemed to exist in relative peace with whites, albeit a peace that, as you heard in the last episode, was praised by leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington but a peace that actually sat atop the fault lines of white supremacy, which African-American leaders in Durham often privately worried could rock their community if they moved the wrong way. I once asked myself how this could be, how Durham and Wilmington managed to have two very prominent Black communities that experienced very different trajectories. I got a really good answer from Professor Korstad. Here he is again.
So sometimes when people talk about Durham, they kind of romanticize it and make it sound like it was just this utopia. Um, but we know that isn't necessarily the case, but there was an unusual, I think, safe to say, amount of cooperation between Blacks and whites in Durham that maybe was not seen so prevalently in other communities throughout the South, including North Carolina. So how did the racial cooperation between Blacks and whites during the 19th and 20th century distinguish Durham County from other Southern communities in the New South? Yeah, I think this notion, this kind of... uh romantic notion of racial cooperation is pretty overdone. And I think it's a complicated thing. Certainly there was relative to a lot of places in the South and even other places in North Carolina, as we can talk about, there wasn't the kind of racial violence. And there was a, there was a kind of quid pro quo between kind of emerging white business class and an emerging black professional business class. And I think its roots really are in the understandings and the notions that that white elites in Durham and, and other parts of North Carolina had about the whole nature of the Jim Crow system and what racial segregation was supposed to be about. And it was best expressed by Charles Aycock, who's the governor of uh, North Carolina, in which he felt like that if blacks and whites tried to really kind of live as one society, as one culture, that they would both in different ways hold each other back. And that the ideal way for blacks and whites to get along or to live in this geographic space was for them to develop their own kind of parallel communities, their own own parallel cultures. And what I think was important for whites and the way they understood this and became important for black leaders, too, was that the best way for that to happen was for black culture to replicate white culture as much as possible. And that meant also including the class structure of white culture. One of the great fears of uh, white supremacists and people like Du Bois and Booker T. Washington at the late 19th century was that black culture was this folk culture, both a folk culture and kind of agrarian rural people. And that was going to make it very difficult for blacks to get any political power, education, be successful and stuff. And for whites, that was a great fear of of theirs. And for a lot of Negrophobes and really ardent racists, they never believed that anything else was possible, you know, which meant that why educate black people if they're always going to be kind of a landed proletariat or domestic workers at best. And so my take on this is that there's a certain kind of racial paternalism that takes place in Durham, where the Dukes in particular, they're giving money to the black college, they're giving money to black churches. They help to some extent, although exaggerated, help finance some of the early developments of some of black business. But I think that was done as a way of creating a certain kind of political and social stability, and not out of a real sense of certainly no belief in Black equality and social equality, but a belief in the kind of distinctiveness of the two cultures, and somehow they could live alongside one another if these kind of boundaries were respected. And I think that that way of thinking led to a lot of the ideas about segregation, whether it's in schools or dining establishments and parks and cemeteries and stuff at all, it fit into this kind of worldview that people had. And I think at least some of the black leadership, I think they realized that given the circumstances, given that the alternatives were another Wilmington race riot, those are real possibilities. And that's why I think this racial cooperation is is overdone. I mean, there is a sense that white terror is always an answer to African-American overachievement. I mean, Wilmington was a great example. (laughs) And if you're an African-American person who has ambition or aspirations in the early 20th century, 
you knew people who got run out of Wilmington. Your family knew people in Wilmington who were killed uh, in, in 1898. And the threat of that, I mean, even in a kind of quasi-liberal place like North Carolina, that was never very far away. I just wonder when I juxtapose in my mind the difference between like a Durham County or even the city of Durham and a Wilmington, the difference between the ideologies of the leaders there, you Mm -hmm. know, trying to Mm -hmm. achieve prosperity. One community, white leaders turn to violence and other community, white leaders try to at least avoid violence. Well, I think one of the answers is that in a place like Durham, these white leaders understood that their welfare and their profitability depended on black labor. I mean, without the hundreds and hundreds of workers who are in those tobacco factories, those factories don't operate. I mean, maybe they could get enough white people to come in and do those jobs, but given the way the work had been racialized and stigmatized, that was not an easy thing to transfer. You don't just get rid of thousands of black workers and put white workers on the job. And that's the difference between Wilmington, because one of the primary instigators of the Wilmington race riot was the demand on the part of white workers in Wilmington for jobs that black workers had, as stevedores, as municipal workers, and white leaders in Wilmington They could afford to just kill people and run all the black people out of town because they had a ready supply of white workers who wanted those jobs and were actually putting pressure on them to try to force blacks out of those jobs. In Durham, that was a kiss of death for the Duke family or any of these other tobacco manufacturers. And I think that where you see a lot more of the racial violence and more in rural areas, but also in, in these towns that weren't as dependent on black labor as you had. I mean, Winston-Salem, which I've studied quite a bit, was very similar. I mean, there were kind of little racial tensions at two or three different moments. There was an attempt at lynching or something else. But boy, these tobacco manufacturers, they put a lid on that as fast as it happened. The police sided often with the African-American community because those factories, without those black workers... They, they don't run. You don't make cigarettes if you don't have people preparing all that tobacco. And anyway, I think that the, the motivations of what differentiates one community from another is really interesting. And I think still pretty understudied in terms of Southern history. That's why all this stuff on Tulsa is really fascinating, because it is very different in a, in a way. What other factors do you think were instrumental in the development and growth of Black communities in Durham, such as Durham's Black Wall Street, the Haiti community? Idea that comes to mind is you talked about Tulsa, the similarities and the differences. Well, similarly to Tulsa, Durham created this sort of insular economy in, in its Black communities out of necessity. Yeah, I mean, I think that the isolation, the necessity was there. I mean, and also just the fact that for the whole system of racial segregation to work, (laughs) you had these kinds of separations and you had these kind of color lines that were drawn very sharply. So if you're going to isolate people or marginalize people, they're going to have to meet their needs in in particular kinds of ways. In Durham and the Haytai neighborhood, and particularly the, you know, the growth of small businesses the religious institutions, uh, educational institutions, and ultimately the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company are kind of symbolic of the necessity of living in a, in a Jim Crow world. And again, it gets back to this kind of separate but parallel institutions where you have as little crossing of the color line one way or the other as possible. I, I think one thing I've taught my students or get my students to try to think about is that segregation and Jim Crow was aimed as much at whites as it was at blacks, because it told white people where they could live, who they could live next to, who they could marry, who they could go to church with, who they could play music with, who they could sit down and have a beer with. And to make that whole system work, you had to enforce it on both sides. And so I think the development of these segregated towns, kind of single race towns, it's pretty predictable. And in the rural areas, it didn't happen because you didn't have enough wealth. So what did you do? Well, you made 
Saturday market town for black. So all the black people come in on Saturday to go shopping and do do all the things. And they go to white stores, but they don't come in Monday through Friday. They don't walk those streets Monday through Friday. So it's a different way of accomplishing the same thing. I mean, Durham, Tulsa, Atlanta, lots of places. In the Old South, they had traditions of Black institutions and Black businesses and stuff. In Durham, they were created whole cloth. There was nothing here. episode, we'll continue to dissect Durham's Black Wall Street. I'd also like to recommend another podcast for history buffs or just people who have an interest in the past. It's called Beyond the Big Screen. I would explain what that is, but you can hear it from the host yourselves. This is Beyond the Big Screen Podcast with your host, Steve Guerra. In this podcast, we will do exactly what the name of the podcast suggests. We will go beyond the big screen, by which I mean we will search for the real background, context, and true story behind movies. We will interview guest experts and authors to find out what the real story is that behind our favorite books, films, television shows, genres, and much more. I will see you next time beyond the big screen. Don't sing along, killers, sing along.